0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen.
1: Your Father in Heaven, we thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you for the rain, even though it inconveniences us. We thank you for bringing each of us here to hear your word and to be influenced by your spirit. May he open our hearts and minds, we pray in
2: Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is the fifth installment of our presentation, His Invitation, Reconciliation, Unity, and Latter-day Power. Um, right now, we're going to continue our analysis of the biblical text. Today, we're going to focus on Romans 8, 3 to 17. Romans 8, 3 to 17. And this afternoon, we're really going to drill down into the text. And so I want to share some things with you before we start, okay? Okay so that you'll understand what we're doing. How many of you are familiar with the fact that a story or a narrative has three elements to it? Every story ever told in any culture has three elements. It has what? Situation, complication, resolution. You can't have a story without those three elements. Are you in agreement? Okay, but when you deal with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is not really a storyteller, although sometimes he will embed a story in one of his letters. Paul deals with what we call argumentation. Don't think about it negatively, it was a rhetorical device used in the first century and was still used today. Argumentation. So, in an argument, you also have some elements. For example, for example, in a story, Paul will use assertion, explanation. You with me? And then proofs. to establish the centrality of Jesus Christ. So let's get it again. Let's get it again now. Really important. Assertions, explanations, and proofs. And then he will blend in sometimes a rhetorical device to clarify. So he used something like contrast, rhetorical contrast. He will argue from cause to effect. Are you with me? hopefully. Okay, so let's go back to our passage, and this is the passage that we ended with yesterday. My wife's going to read it, and then we're going to build on it.
1: Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death.
2: Okay, so this is his predicate. This is where he starts. This is the fundamental assertion. Now watch this. We're gonna just add something for you, verse three, and, and look at what happened.
1: For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit.
2: All right, you see all those elements there? Question.
1: In verse 3a, does Paul diminish the law of God? Yeah. And so it says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh.
2: God did, okay. You see what he's doing? Well, let me help you. Analysis.
1: After contrasting two opposing laws or principles to which he will return, Paul reestablishes the inability of the law to produce righteousness because of the flesh.
2: Yeah, and so Paul is not in any way degrading the law but he's talking about the problem of the flesh. You get that? There's a problem with the flesh. Now we need some clarification on what Paul means when he's talking about the flesh.
1: The Greek "sarks" are sarkos, meaning flesh or of the flesh. Although Paul can use the term flesh in various ways in this passage, he uses it negatively as a metaphor for sinful human nature, that is, life in Adam. The heart, as a metaphor, is often used the same way in scripture.
2: So when we talk about, according to the scripture, when we talk about flesh as a metaphor, oftentimes it is used interchangeably with the heart. With the heart. Watch this.
1: Jesus says of the Jews, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me.
2: Mm -hmm. Their hearts are far from me.
1: In context, Paul reminds his audience that Pharisaic Jews have attempted to produce righteousness through commandment keeping, focusing on do's and don'ts.
2: They focused on rules. They focused on behavior. They focused on the external. Although
1: God's law is holy, righteous, and good, these Jews fail to realize that sin is a flesh or heart problem, an internal condition.
2: Do we get that? You know, you can try to tame your flesh all day long. And the simple problem is that you're starting at the wrong place. Because sin is a what? It's a heart condition. And so Paul is trying to get them to understand that external conformity to rules is not enough. Wow. You know, now, being a Seventh-day Adventist pastor for over 40 years, you know I could stay here and preach, right? But I'm going to move on. I think we got it. I think we understand. Let's look at traditional SDA theology and its emphasis. Now, I said traditional, so I'm talking about the home that I grew up in, the church that I was formed in, the school, the elementary school, Bethel Seventh-day Adventist School in Brooklyn, New York. And the early preachers, and I can talk about some famous preachers that you would know. And praise God, many of them grew, but they all embraced traditional SDA theology. Let's break it down. Tell me if if you understand this now. It starts with Doctrinal truth understood. You have to know the fundamentals. So let's take an example. Most of us know quite a bit about the Sabbath. It's one of our fundamental beliefs, one of our doctrines. Isn't that right? Although I would question that if we really do understand the Sabbath, because Sabbath is only truly revealed in Jesus Christ. But that's another question. Okay, so, so doctrine understood.
1: Belief and behavior corrected.
2: See, some of you millennials are too young to realize that in the old days when we had the tent and the sawdust and the whole deal, that a 12-week meeting, and usually remember, it was 12, at least 12 weeks, the evangelists would preach, the, uh, the um, Bible workers would work, and the goal was to have a convert Change their beliefs, particularly about the right day and the wrong day. The right day is the the wrong day is so correct that belief. And then before we would let you go to a seven-day Adventist church while you were still in the tent, you had to worship on the Sabbath while you were still in the tent because we want you to correct your behavior. That's how we did
1: it. And the Bible worker would come to your house on a Friday to teach you how to prepare for the Sabbath. That was part of the work. So that when the Sabbath came, you had your clothes washed and your food cooked. Right. Okay.
2: Now, the last
1: part. Eternal life guaranteed.
2: That was it. Do you all realize that one of the reasons God gave us the 1888 message is because of this theology? You know, when I was a young person, the evangelists did not talk a whole lot about Jesus Christ. This was our theology. I know it's painful, but it's true. Now, let's go back to the text.
1: The Eternal Solution. Paul asserts what the law could not do. Look
2: closely at the text. It's so beautiful. You know, the beauty is palpable. What the law could not do, Paul says... Look at everybody. Look at it. God. Notice.
1: No verb in the original language.
2: You know, that's why it's in italicis in this text, because in the original language, it does not say God did. It just says God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Here's the point.
1: God provided his means of righteousness through the death of Christ.
2: God. Now,
1: remember it is called justification by faith.
2: And we want to review this with you, but now we want to review it with a video. So watch the video closely.
3: In the 2012 movie Batman Returns, one of Catwoman's driving motivations was her desire for a clean slate. As you might imagine, she has a pretty sordid history as an international cat burglar, and, like all of us in the age of social media, every detail of her life is on record somewhere on the World Wide Web, making it impossible for her to escape the past. But, word on the streets of Gotham is that someone has developed a powerful computer program called the Clean Slate, which will erase your entire internet record from every database on the planet, it, all with a simple click of a single button. And for reasons that are perhaps obvious, Catwoman would do anything to get her hands on it. In this respect, Catwoman is more than just a comic book supervillain. She is also a metaphor for us all. At least, the way data about us accumulates on the internet until it starts to define us and control us is one of the growing social issues of our day. Harvard professor Jonathan Zittrain uses the term reputational bankruptcy to talk about all this. The web never forgets, he reminds us, and as more and more of our lives are lived online, it becomes increasingly difficult to escape the impact of our digital footprints. What we need, as a train argues, is some way to declare reputational bankruptcy and start over. Like if the internet allowed you a one-time pulling of a lever that would delete your digital identity and you could just start fresh. The concept of reputational bankruptcy is a helpful image for something the Bible calls justification by faith. The idea is that we are justified before God, not by works, keeping the Old Testament law or adhering to some human-defined moral code, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Strictly speaking, the term justification is a legal term that describes a judge rendering a not guilty verdict in a court of law. To be justified is to be declared not guilty. But what exactly does this mean? How does God declare us not guilty on the basis of our faith in Christ? And what does this justification actually look like for us in real life? Well, this is where the clean slate comes in handy. Because in the same way that all the digital data that's accumulated about us on the internet has all sorts of implications for our present, impacting our ability to get a job, to secure a bank loan, to get a date, and so on, so much so that our digital identity can come to define us in all sorts of unhealthy ways, so too with sin. Biblically, sin is not just about the moral failings of the past that need forgiveness. It is also about how these moral failings define us and have all sorts of implications for our present. Our ability to serve God, our ability to commune with Him, our ability to take our place as one of His people. We don't just need forgiveness, we need a brand new spiritual identity. And justification by faith is for our spiritual identities what the clean slate is to our digital identities. On the cross, Christ stands in our place as our fully human representative. And through his own death, he puts to death the entire sin record of our lives. He canceled the accusation that stood against us, is how the Bible puts it, nailing it to the cross. Through his own death, he wipes the slate clean. And then through his resurrection on the other side, he offers us a brand new identity to live, united with his resurrection life. In a very real way, putting our faith in Christ is like declaring reputational bankruptcy and so allowing God to justify us, to wipe the record clean so that Christ's identity can now define us. And like it says in one place, having been justified like this through faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ.
2: Now, I hope that little video was helpful But I think even even more helpful is this text that we're going to share with you now in Romans 3, 21 to 24.
1: But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify.
2: Don't miss (laughs) this. Righteousness comes apart from the law, but the law and the prophets bear witness. Get that point. Next.
1: This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to
2: all who believe. Now watch this word, all, and how many times it comes up. This is given through faith in Jesus Christ to what? To all who believe. Next.
1: There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus.
2: Are you all seeing something? We have made the case this week that Paul wrote this letter in order to reconcile and unite a divided Christian community in Rome. Have we been trying to make that case? Okay. Notice that he says that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Does that include Jews and Gentiles? But now he's saying that through faith in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles have been what? Justified. His emphasis here is not on individual justification. It is the justification that is shared. Let us make the key points.
1: In context, Paul uses the language of justification to assert that believing Jews and Gentiles have both been declared righteous through faith in Christ.
2: Get the next point.
1: God shows no partiality. They share a common salvation.
2: You know, so there's no salvation for one group that is different from the other group. There is only one common salvation, and that salvation is through faith, by grace in Jesus Christ, or grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Are we all together? This is what Paul is trying to get across at this point. Now let's go back to the text. We said that we're drilling down now. So look at what he says.
1: Christ is God's righteousness imputed and imparted through the work of the spirit. God's law internalized written on the heart.
2: Now, let's go a little bit deeper.
1: In verse 4b... Through the use of rhetorical contrast, Paul introduces two different ways of walking or living for believers in Rome. So this is where it says, who do do not walk according to the flesh, but according
2: to the spirit. So again, Paul is using a rhetorical device here. He's contrasting life according to what? The flesh and life according to the spirit. Let us show it to you. And Paul loves to do this. Do you see it? Life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, walking in Christ versus life according to the Spirit. The flesh. I mean, to the flesh, excuse me. So you have, you have this Greek notion of katanuma, and some pronounce it panuma, and life, kartasarka. Okay, so it is life according to the Spirit versus life according to the flesh. Do we get the contrast? Okay, now, look at this.
1: For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God.
2: Analysis?
1: In these verses, Paul explains his radical contrast between flesh living and spirit living by adding the involvement of the mind.
2: Ah, so let's think about what he says now about the mind.
1: Greek phroneo or phronema, to think or thought. Paul uses mind as a metaphor for attitude, thinking, the inner or moral principle. I'm sorry, disposition. Here he connects mind with flesh. In other words, the sinful human nature influences the mind, individual and group, Resulting in a way of thinking, a way of living, a world view. Again, the metaphor heart is instructive. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he.
2: So are you getting the connection now between this notion of the mind and the heart? Because it's more than the individual. You can have groupthink. Have you ever been part of groupthink? Thus, to set the mind on
1: the flesh means to think continually and constantly desire the things characteristic of the fallen, sinful human nature, that is, to think just the way the unbelieving world thinks, in disregard of God's will.
2: Now we want you to get this point.
1: In context, Paul will argue that the mind renewed by the Spirit will reject Greco-Roman ethnocentrism.
2: So ethnocentrism is to think according to the flesh. Are you you getting that? So if your thinking is informed and controlled by race, that is according to the flesh. If it's controlled by tribalism, that is according to the flesh. If it's controlled by caste, that is life according to the flesh. How about nationalism? That is life according to the flesh. Now, am I making this up, or is this what Paul is saying? Oh, you're not sure? Is is it Paul? Come on, say Paul. Okay, yeah. These words are inspired. As a Christian, I do not get to pick and choose. My Bible tells me you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? It will make you free. Let's go to this question.
1: Contextually, What does Paul mean when he uses the expression life according to the flesh?
2: We have a textual (laughs) answer.
1: The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles.
2: Here's an important note.
1: In this passage, Paul describes Gentile life according to the flesh.
2: So every Gentile nation, think about it for a moment. You can go back to Egypt and then come down to Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia, Greece and Rome, and they all, according to Paul, were living according to the flesh. Notice this now. Now we want to describe for you the origin of this way of living. Basic assumptions.
1: Western pagan thinking assumes the priority of human wisdom.
2: Ah, Now this is at the heart of life according to the flesh. My Bible tells me that in the beginning God, this way of thinking says in the beginning man. Watch this.
1: Protagoras, a Greek philosopher around 5th century B.C., posits three core claims. Man is the measure of all things. And from this, we derive the philosophical schools of egoism, individualism, and humanism. So everything started with man, especially the Greek man. and This is what the Greeks taught. This was the root of their ethnocentrism, that Greeks were better than anybody else.
2: Second claim.
1: Human argument is decisive. From this we get the f- philosophical position of rationalism. The notion is that the strength of the logic of an argument is what makes it prevail, not its rightness or wrongness. So if I had a bad thought and could argue it persuasively, this had more status than you having a right argument and unable to argue it persuasively. Everything based on the quality of the human rational argument.
2: Yeah, in a courtroom in the West, it's not really about truth. It's about evidence and what you can prove. Third.
1: No one can tell if the gods exist. And this is the root of anti-theism and agnosticism. These claims constitute the foundation of Greco-Roman culture and are the basis of Western thought today.
2: Yeah. So every Western academy, I'm talking about from Harvard to Yale to Oxford to Princeton, they are based on these assumptions. Get it now? Now, look at the fact that Pythagoras is the intellectual father, and these are names that you do know of Plato and Aristotle. Two fathers, again, of Western thought. Now here's an important clarification.
1: To all of the above isms, the Greek added what is now called ethnocentrism,
2: And so we have a little video to explain this, and we're helping guys in the back.
4: Up until the late 16th century, most people believed in a geocentric model of the solar system. This meant that the earth was the center of everything. This way of thinking impacted the way we viewed our place in the universe. It wasn't until Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler's work that we gradually transitioned to the heliocentric theory that we have today. Just like geocentric theory, Being ethnocentric can influence the way we look at other cultures. Ethnocentric is when you think your own culture is better than other cultures. It's the belief that one cultural group is centrally important and superior to others. We are ethnocentric when we use our cultural norms to make generalizations about other people's cultures and customs. Ethnocentrism leads to cultural misinterpretation, and it often distorts communication between human beings. While you can't choose the cultural lens through which you view life, you can stop and look at the bigger picture. The earth is round. The sun is at the center of our solar system. And the world is filled with more cultures than just yours.
2: We want to give you a brief history of the origins of ethnocentrism. So here it is, briefly.
1: During the early classical period, 510 to 323 BC, Greeks created a categorical stink- distinction between themselves and the so-called barbarians. They constructed a discourse of identity that exalted Greek identity and Greek culture and viewed barbarians in a dismissive and pejorative manner and su- that sometimes bordered on being racist. Greeks promulgated and exported the superiority of their own way of life. They called this process Hellenization.
2: Now we want to show you the elements of Hellenization because the Greeks argued that their philosophy was superior, huh? their sports, their architecture, their art, I have to look at it literature, theater, go on Helen. Their religion, their
1: science, their music, and their government.
2: Notwithstanding the fact that some of these things were appropriated from other countries as they conquered those countries, but they all became subsumed into Greek culture. I want you to understand this. It's very important. Now, Greco-Roman paganism, ethnic identity. Get this, Greek worldview.
1: So the Greeks divided everybody in the world into Greeks and the other, the ethnic other, in other words, barbarians, people that were uncivilized that didn't speak Greek. So they included Egyptians,
2: Persians, and Jews, among others. Okay, these are uncivilized people, but think about the definition of civilization. In other words, if you're not like me, then you are what? uncivilized. Look at the Roman worldview.
1: So you had Romans and they included the Greeks because they were sort of honorary. They got so much from them. And then barbarians, same thing as the Greeks, Parthians, Britons, and the Jews.
2: Now notice something. They both zeroed in on the Jews. Yeah, really important. Key point.
1: The Greeks invented and the Romans enshrined the myth of the barbarian, the uncivilized other, at the border as a justification for conquest.
2: In other words, I now had a legitimate reason to come and take your land. Now, here is what we want you to focus on. We're giving this to you for a reason. So focus on this now, and this is the Jewish reaction to Greek ethnocentrism.
1: Historical note, Jewish reactionary ethnocentrism was heightened in response to Antiochus Epiphanes' desecration of the temple and his attempt to Hellenize Palestine. After this time, most Jews became so concerned with temporal liberation that they rejected God's plan in Jesus and killed their Messiah. This is life according to the flesh.
2: Are you all getting this? I'm I'm, I'm not sure. Let's look at it graphically. The Jews, because of reaction to ethnocentrism. So oftentimes the reaction is worse than the action. They reacted to ethnocentrism, and here is what they did. They put liberation in the center of their lives. And look at what they put on the periphery, the Messiah. So that by the time Jesus came, they were practicing liberation idolatry. Do you all understand why they chose Barabbas? He was a revolutionary. They did not want a suffering servant. They wanted a liberator. And I want you all to get this. Yes, ethnocentrism is bad. And yes, you have people who have perpetrated ethnocentrism a long time. But if you respond in kind, you are just as bad as the person who started it. Oh, no amens. Okay, so we keep on going. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And both are life according to the flesh, according to scripture. Keep on moving. We have plenty to go.
1: American ethnocentrism.
2: And we want to kind of bring it home now. We're going to bring it home. And now, again, it's time to do what to your seatbelts? Okay, fasten them up a little bit. Fasten them up a little bit. Okay, go ahead, honey.
1: One of the myths of American ethnocentrism is this notion that America was the chosen nation. But it didn't start Mm -hmm. with, it didn't start with America. It started back in England with William Tyndall, or Tyndall, who was one of the translators of the Bible, one of the early uh, reformers against Catholicism. He had this notion that people in England were the chosen nation in the same way the Israelites were the chosen nation uh, in the Old Testament. And so, when they came to the to the new world, when the pilgrims came, they had firmly uh, grasped this belief in themselves as a chosen nation. Well, if they were the chosen nation, who were those Indians that they encountered? They were the pagan tribes of Canaan, and this justified many of the bad things that they did to those Indians. They were to be punished and driven out in the same way that the pagan tribes were going to be driven out. So this. This justified the genocide that was perpetrated against the American Indians. And as you know, many of those tribes that lived in the uh, northeastern part of the country, uh, the Mohicans, the Wampanoag, were totally wiped out, uh, even though they were the ones that gave the food and took the pilgrims through those first hard winters in the New World.
2: And notice, notice, this is the crime here, This was done in the name of Christianity. Let's get that. Go ahead.
1: Then we have America's original sin, which of course was slavery. So again, this notion of being chosen allowed people in America to feel that people that were from Africa were less than, were inferior. And so that it was okay to bring these people and enslave them because again they represented this this otherness, this barbarianism, this uncivilized group of people that were less than and then able to be exploited and controlled. And finally, you know, if you look at the history, and this is the history where the church arose. Our church arose in the context of chattel slavery and abolition. Our church was formed in the, in the context of the Civil War, 1863, if you recall. But we have slavery, and when it ended, Jim Crow, you know, which was, again, the systematic oppression of people based on race and the structural racism that we even find in our country, unfortunately, today. Nativism arose, especially uh, before the First World War, where certain people were acceptable immigrants, So if you came from England or Germany or from Scandinavia, you were an acceptable immigrant. You were Protestant. You were educated. You had money. Nativism was a very bad thing that happened when people started to come from places that were not Protestant. Catholic countries, Greeks, Irish, Hispanics, people from Portugal, people from Italy. They were different and they were told that they were not welcome and devalued in many ways.
2: Let's move to Adventist ethnocentrism. Do you all want to hear this or not? Let me me see, Uh, you you want to hear it, okay. (laughs) Okay, so good. (laughs) From what? Prophetic resistance. Now, I got to ask you a question. How many of you in here know the history the early history of Adventism, within the context of chattel slavery in America. We can praise God for our pioneers. You all, you all have no idea. I wish I had time to describe the faithfulness of people like, like Byington, our first president, who, by the way, had an underground railroad along with Bates, along with Kellogg. That's another seminar, okay. Do you all realize that Ellen White said in 1850 that we were to break the fugitive slave law, the federal law, and suffer the consequences? The Lord blessed us. And and, and, and I want to make one more important point. Because we have this notion, this foolish notion, that if you stand up for right, then you're being political. Ellen White and James White stood up for what was right, Uriah Smith. They all called Lincoln a hypocrite for the Emancipation Proclamation because it didn't free anybody in the northern states that were occupied by the northern states. And they did it in writing. And they did it because slavery, according to our founders, wasn't a political issue. It was a moral issue. And one last thing. You had different kinds of abolitionists. Huh? You know that. You had these gradualists. Do you know that, that the famous um, abolitionists?
1: William Lloyd Garrison.
2: William Lloyd Garrison, he was a gradualist because he didn't want to destroy the American economy. How about our pioneers? Were they gradualists? No. They were radical abolitionists. They said, they said, end it now. No, no, no. End it yesterday. Come on now. Are you happy about that? That is the early history of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Within the context of slavery, and you think about it for a moment: Why did God bring this church into existence at that time to be a moral voice for the kingdom of God? Now, I could stay here. I just love talking about you know our early, our early stuff. 15 okay, fifteen minutes. Oh, what? Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> Okay, then we move to institutional accommodation. So with that great early history, Adventism, because of what occurred in 1877, my wife's going to share that with you right now, we move into accommodating what was going on in the culture. So by
1: 1877, remember that the uh, southern states were occupied like they were occupied country in Europe, by the Northern armies. And at that time, um, people were able to do a lot of things, freed people, because of the fact that the Northern armies were there, that protected them and allowed them to have businesses and whatever. By 1877, folk were getting tired of occupation. The Reconstruction is what it was called. So based on some political maneuvering that brought Rutherford B. Hayes to the presidency, the Northern armies left the South. And when they left the South, they left the former slaves unprotected. And so we get this period of Jim Crow and lynching and the Ku Klux Klan and the whole nine yards because um, the, the North was not there to protect them. And so at that time, our church, based on this type of racism, as they entered the southern states to work for black people, we got a lot of resistance to this. They got a lot of... Um, arson, murderings, whatever, intimidation. And so the church had to separate in order to protect the people that were there. So they no longer worship together after that because if they did, they were subject to oppression by the society that surrounded them.
2: And more than that, little by little, our church engaged in cultural compromise and all of our institutions until the mid-70s became segregated." Yeah, the mid-70s. That's just true. It's just history. One quick illustration, and that is apartheid. And this is going to be painful. It's painful for me, but do you know that the Seventh-day Adventist Church started apartheid, this kind of separation, in South Africa 60 years before the government of South Africa.
1: 1948.
2: 1948, and we ended after 1948. Unfortunately, that's a historical fact. And then to de facto ethnocentrism, 1975 to the present. Now we want to show you something. Questions. Black reaction, question. And we're using the black reaction in terms of non white reaction, okay? Because you have it in Latino and in Asian reaction.
1: Is it possible that many black Adventists are unwittingly duplicating Judaism's mistake? Is Jesus being replaced at the center with a temporal humanistic agenda?
2: Mm. We have so many black young ministers, for example, into this notion of Black Lives Matter. And I'm talking about a secular strategy for social justice. So the notion is social justice in the center. And where's Christ again? On the periphery. It's still what? Idolatry.
1: Does God have a plan of justice in Christ?
2: And you know what I love about God's justice plan? God's justice plan not only embraces time, but embraces eternity. And so I want to be part of God's plan. I want to be one of his warriors. Are
1: some black Adventists in reaction, living according to the flesh?
2: Do you all know that Carol and I, we get in trouble for sharing this? But we're going to show you something about Paul. Because truth is impartial. Let's understand that. Let's keep going. We're looking at the time now.
1: Critical question: Is ethnocentrism sin?
2: No, don't don't answer it like that. I mean, yeah. everybody would not agree with you. Necessary clarification:
1: Before the question of ethnic sin can be addressed, sin must be defined.
2: Yeah, my clicker is not working, so. Last video.
0: The word sin appears almost 400 times in the Bible. What is sin exactly? The simplest answer is that sin is disobedience to God. Sin can be thought of as committing a spiritual crime. Most of us do not think of ourselves as criminals. We tend to think of crime in terms of murder, theft, arson, drunk driving, and so on. However, even those of us who have not committed any of these crimes are still spiritual criminals, even if our worst offense is telling a lie. The Bible says that all people sin. Often we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are good people because we don't commit the worst kinds of sins. If we compare ourselves to each other, this might be a valid conclusion. In reality, it does no good to compare ourselves to one another because this is not the yardstick that God measures by. He does not grade on the curve. The prophet Isaiah said, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In the sight of God, even our good deeds are like something filthy because they are mingled with all the sins we have committed. Tragically, the whole world is full of sin. What makes something a sin? The Bible teaches that the basic concept of sin is the idea of missing the target. What target is it that God expects us to hit? To answer this, let's consider a question that was asked of Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments Jesus said the greatest commandment is that we are to love God the second is similar to it we are to love one another this is the target that God wants us to aim for all of the commandments God has given us are based on love God teaches us that if we love someone We should always be trying to do what is in their best interest, no matter who they are. We show our love by obeying all that He has taught us. If we instinctively knew how to love each other, God would not have needed to give us instructions. His commands, if obeyed, result in showing love to Him, ourselves, and to everyone else. His commands aren't meant to keep us from having fun, but rather they serve to teach and protect us. Obeying God is in our own best interest because the commands He has given are for our own good and the good of others. We show our love by obeying all that he has taught us, to disobey us to sin. God's commandments are actually instructions which teach us how to be like him. The more we become like him, the more we put the well-being of others first. The more we do this, the less hurtful things we do to ourselves and others. Got it?
2: <laughs> now, the question, and we're going to go to Paul, Paul's apostolic ad- admonition.
1: To Jewish believers... Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what is best because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children having the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then that teach others, will you not teach yourself? You that boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you.
2: And we want you to get this point. The Jews
1: had weaponized the truth against the Gentiles.
2: Wait, did you know that you can use truth ethnocentrically? But Paul is even-handed. Look at this.
1: To the Gentile believers. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Wow. The Gentiles had arrogantly dismissed the Jewish minority.
2: So look at how Paul deals with both groups in Rome. Does he coddle the Jewish group because he's an ethnic Jew? No. He is teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ and he does the same thing with Gentiles. Back to the question. Is ethnocentrism sin? The SDA dilemma. This is according to the flesh. But isn't this also according to the flesh? How about, how about African-American centrism? We see it at Oakwood. Or how about Hispanic centrism? Again, this notion of the Spanish person or man at the center. And then, and we're making these things up now, F Asian centrism. Again, the idea is the Asian man at the center. And notice something consistent. It is all life according to the the flesh. So let's get it clear and get a biblical definition of sin. The faith that
1: you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin.
2: Whatever does not proceed from faith in God's Christ is sin. Key point.
1: Within the context of Gentile and Jewish disputes over cultural non-essentials, for example, ceremonial laws, Paul defines sin as that which does not flow from faith in Jesus Christ.
2: Anything that is not of faith is sin. And now listen to Ellen White's inspiration on this topic of ethnocentrism.
1: The religion of Christ will unite in close brotherhood all who accept its teachings. It was the mission of Jesus to reconcile men to God and thus to one another. But the the world at large are under the control of Satan, Christ's bitterest foe. The gospel presents to them the principles of life which are holy at variance with their habits and desires, and they rise in rebellion against it. They hate the purity which reveals and condemns their sins, and they persecute and destroy those who would urge upon them its just and holy claims. It is in this sense, because the exalted truths it brings, it brings occasion hatred and strife, that the gospel is called a sword.
2: A little bit more from Ellen White.
1: No distinction on account of nationality, race, or caste is recognized by God. He is the maker of all mankind. All men are of one family by creation, and all are one through redemption. Christ came to demolish every wall of partition, to throw open every compartment of the temple, that every soul may have free access to God. His love is so broad, so deep, so full, that it penetrates everywhere. It lifts out of Satan's circle the poor souls who have been deluded by this deception. It places them within the reach of the throne of God, the throne encircled by the rainbow of promise.
2: And we have a little bit more material than we can finish today, so we're just going to add it over to tomorrow. But I do want you to look at this question and don't throw any rocks at the podium, okay? No rocks. Here's the question.
1: Why is ethnocentrism not called sin in our doctrinal statements or baptismal vows?
2: And if I had right now an amen slide, I would press the button, okay? Um, we We have two minutes and we have the mic. And like I said, we'll pick up on the end of this presentation, we ran out of time. We have two minutes. Quickly. Any questions or comments?
5: I just wanted to say about the early pioneers that their stance for, um, um, you know, no slavery, it, it was biblical, and especially um, when it came to a runaway slave. There's a, I can't remember what the verse was, but that was their verse, the standard... Of their um, principle of not returning a slave to his owner if he had escaped. And it, it was biblical. I, I don't know, I was watching something, some um, history um, from a, um, you know, a, a, what is it, a Zoom thing when, that we had with, when Stephen was on a panel and the, the historians, they were doing um, Adventist history. And so I learned that from them, and that was a good thing
2: you know um and and, and what kind of closure is this you know I, I love I love the pioneers that God gave us and there is a reason. do you know that they were one of the few churches, not the only church, to argue that white men and black men were both created in the image of God. Do you all know that William Lloyd Garrison did not believe that? Do you all realize that on the day Abraham Lincoln was killed, by the way he did not believe that blacks and whites were equal before God, on the day that he was killed that morning, he was in a meeting planning the repatriation of black people in America to Africa he was planning to get rid of all of them. William Lloyd Garrison did not believe in the equality of blacks and whites before God, but our pioneers did. Amen and they and they understood it based on the word of We have something to celebrate. Last one, quickly.
6: Uh, No, you actually, the question here, which says, why is ethnocentrism not called sin in our doctrinal statements or baptismal vows? And that is something actually working in ministry, you know, having a husband who's a pastor. And that often comes up, especially over the last several years. And it's this question, which is, we don't have a problem calling out things such as, um, if someone's not eating properly. Right. Or if someone's smoking, calling that sin or calling, you know, things that murder sin. Um, if someone commits adultery, we can call that sin. But one of the things that we tend to stay away from is the racial implication of racism or ethnocentrism and calling that sin. And, um, and it is a it is a huge question within the millennial generation and beyond. And so I think that is a really serious question for sure, especially when we are a church that purports ourselves to stand for righteousness. But we stay away from talking about that.
2: We're going to pick it up on tomorrow. God bless you, and thank you so much.
0: To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.